You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Because vitamin D deficiency has been receiving a deluge of media coverage lately, physicians are likely to hear many related questions from patients, especially long-term care residents and their families. What are the latest developments in vitamin D research, and how can adequate vitamin D levels help prevent falls among our older patients? Joining us to translate recent findings on vitamin D from the bench to the bedside is Dr. Bruce Trone, professor of medicine, research scientist at the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center, and director of the Molecular Gerontology Program at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Bruce, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk about vitamin D today. We're going to talk about falls. And with the recent information out on calcium, we're going to bring calcium into the timely discussion as well. But let's start with the basics of vitamin D and osteoporosis and falls. Why do you think there's such a surge of attention with regards to vitamin D? Well, what I like to, first of all, frame the vitamin D story is in a larger context. And for us to recognize that its impacts go way beyond just the skeleton and that indeed we have what I like to call a stealthy epidemic. And it's a worldwide epidemic of vitamin D insufficiency. If we look globally, we can think, what should be normal for vitamin D levels? And this is pretty hard to figure out because we really don't know what evolution put us forward for because we don't have that direct data. But there's been some interesting evidence-based speculation by Michael Hollick and his associates to suggest that in caveman times, expected exposure to sun that our typical vitamin D levels might have been in a 60 or 65 nanogram per milliliter range. This means that if you look at the typical levels in this country, which are often in the 20 to 30 nanogram per milliliter range, that we're not anywhere near close to our evolutionary design. And so what's happened in the last few years is that we've developed an increasing awareness that we should think of vitamin D in terms of frank deficiency at levels that are quite low, below 10 nanograms per milliliter, which can have a series of consequences that we can discuss in a few minutes, and that perhaps more widespread, and for most of our patient care providers, there is a vitamin D insufficiency, and that is somewhere less than 30 or 32 nanograms per milliliter. And the first evidence that we had widespread deficiency has come about really in trying to understand what the vitamin D status was in patients who were suffering osteoporotic fractures. And there is a wealth of evidence to suggest that those people who come in with vertebral and hip fractures are markedly vitamin D insufficient and that as much as to 95% of these populations have vitamin D levels below 30 nanograms per milliliter. What's perhaps even more important is that after the diagnosis has been made, unfortunately, it appears that as much as somewhere between 50% or higher of these populations still stay vitamin D insufficient because we have a dearth of awareness of the importance that vitamin D status would have on fracture prevention. A series of studies have helped to document that this is widespread. And 
while our traditional view of vitamin D status has been that it's linked to sunlight exposure, there are a number of reasons which help, unfortunately, to make vitamin D insufficiency widespread regardless of geographic variation. So one might think that down here in southern Florida, where I am right now, that we get a lot of sunshine uh, during the year and that we would have less vitamin D insufficiency. Well, it depends what population you're looking at. And if we're talking about a more elderly, frail population who may very well be staying inside because they don't get that much physical activity, who very likely is protecting their skin because of all the appropriate awareness of skin damage and skin cancer from sun exposure. And then it turns out that in the over 65 age range group, that as many as 50 to 90% have vitamin D levels below 30 nanograms per milliliter, and as much as 33 to 50% have vitamin D levels below 20 nanograms per milliliter. So even in a sun-drenched locale such as southern Florida, there could be significant vitamin D insufficiency in at-risk populations. And this is seen throughout the country, so where one might expect up in Minnesota, for example, or in the Northwest where there's a lot less sun, that there's also a comparable level of vitamin D insufficiency. And this insufficiency is persistent, interestingly enough, through the different seasons. So while it's somewhat less in the summer when you get more sun exposure, it is not uh, significantly ameliorated, especially in these elderly populations. So the important first step is to recognize that vitamin D insufficiency is widespread and that the insufficiency between 10 and 30 nanograms per milliliter is enough to contribute to fracture incidence. And not just fracture incidence, but also predisposition towards falls. And so we all know that if you're higher risk for falls and you have poorer bone, then the combination of the two puts you at even greater risk for adverse consequences associated with fractures. Well, let's talk about some of the practices in long-term care right now because most of our docs have really figured this out in one way or another. And in fact, when I teach our fellows and residents, I say you just about can't over-treat vitamin D deficiency. But in the nursing home, we have lots of enlightened medical directors and physicians that put their patients on 50,000 units of vitamin D once a month, and the indication is false prevention. You want to talk about that? Yes, and it's great to know that in the last few years, I agree to completely that within the long-term care setting, the awareness level has increased dramatically. So we're at a much better place than we were a few years ago. But there are still some important issues in trying to determine what is the best regimen, what is the best dosage in order to overcome the vitamin D insufficiency. And indeed, there are a number of articles that have spoken to this. And so if we take a step back, one might think, well, perhaps we should be getting a daily vitamin D dose because if we were to go out into the sun each day, we would get a production of vitamin D that we should therefore mimic the physiologic production of it. But in fact, there are a number of articles that show that giving vitamin D on a more intermittent basis, though maybe not too intermittent as we'll get into in a few moments, can be just as effective in raising vitamin D levels. In fact, there's a recent article by Sarah Pietris and her colleague Michael Hollick, which actually look at administration of ergocalciferol to treat vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency. And here I think the 
the distinction between deficiency and insufficiency is important to make from a standpoint of the initial treatment. I think it's well accepted that if your patient has a vitamin D level that is less than 10 nanograms per milliliter, that one wants to consider that frankly deficient and that 50,000 units a week for at least 8 to 12 weeks should be administered. But then the longer-term question arises for those patients and for those other patients who are somewhere between 10 and 30 nanograms, what would be the dose for administration? And so in this recent article that uh, appeared in the Archives of Internal Medicine, it demonstrated that ongoing treatment with 50,000 units of ergocalciferol twice a week was very effective in maintaining good levels of vitamin D above 30 nanograms per milliliter and doing so in the absence of any adverse effects, such as calcium levels increasing or renal stones. There are other articles which have actually looked at higher doses of vitamin D administered either orally or parenterally, and I think it's important to mention one of those, a recent article which actually looked at a higher dose of 500,000 units of colocalciferol, so not ergocalciferol. Ergocalciferol is vitamin D2. Colocalciferol is vitamin D3. And so this is by Sanders and co-authors that appeared in JAMA. They administered 500,000 units. This was an annual oral administration of high-dose colocalciferol. And this is in an older community dwelling women. They found that there was an increased risk of falls and fractures in this group. And so I think what this points out is that perhaps we can go too far in uh, trying to streamline administration of colocalciferol so that we have to be careful that if we give too much, even though that effectively eliminates the vitamin D insufficiency, there may be some unexpected impacts. So I think that for the time being, 50,000 units twice a month, every two weeks, is a very effective and hopefully efficient way of administering vitamin D to a nursing home population. And I would also say that if one wants to, that doses of between two and 5,000 units a day on a daily basis would also be very effective. But it'd be important to point out that we have really no good interventional studies in nursing home populations to look at fracture outcomes. There are studies that look at reduction of falls, one out of uh, Australia, which showed a significant reduction in falls of 1,000 units a day or up to 10,000 units a week of ergo or colocalciferol. They had to switch their vitamin in the middle of the study. But we don't have good evidence on fracture outcomes. So I think it's fair to extrapolate and say that we're doing our patients a benefit, but we should realize that still more research needs to be done to know what optimal doses might be when we're talking about the consequences for osteoporosis. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and joining me to discuss making the connection between vitamin D, falls, and fracture prevention is Dr. Bruce Troen, professor of medicine, research scientist at the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center, and director of the Molecular Gerontology Program at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Well, we said we wanted to discuss a little bit more about calcium since it's come into the equation now with regards to coronary disease, its use with or without vitamin D, and its impact on the elderly. Let's take it from the perspective of what should clinicians do now with the new information on calcium? It's long been felt 
that some calcium supplementation is good. But again, similar to many of our approaches to vitamin D, there is a lack of good evidence, especially in nursing home populations and the frail elderly, as to how much is both necessary and beneficial. And so we've commonly taken the approach that in elderly and postmenopausal women that we would need somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 milligrams a day. What has recently come out is that a meta-analysis, and this was published in the British Medical Journal from New Zealand, uh, the senior investigator is Ian Reid, they did a meta-analysis of looking at whether calcium supplementation could increase the risk of cardiovascular events. I think we all have to be cautious when looking at meta-analyses and that you are uh, collating disparate sources of information and that the conclusions have to be somewhat tentative. But they found that calcium supplementation without co-administered vitamin D, that's a very important point, so without vitamin D concurrently, calcium supplements would be associated, have been associated with an increased risk of MIs. Now, these are modest increases, but I think that this points out that we have to be first doing no harm to our patients in supplementing them in order to help prevent fractures. But since I think that in the nursing home population, as many of our listeners know, that we are very much inclined to make sure that vitamin D levels are good, that it's therefore important to stress that we have no evidence that vitamin D and calcium together cause these adverse impacts on cardiovascular disease risk. Indeed, there is epidemiologic evidence to suggest that good vitamin D levels are actually associated with less cardiovascular disease. So I think that this is an important study for which we all need to be aware, but I actually don't think it should have a direct impact on most of our approaches to patients in the nursing home setting or for the frail elderly at this time. Well, I think it actually helps us a bit in that if we do the vitamin D separate or adequately, then we won't have to worry about the calcium so much. I know I have lots of patients that don't like their calcium because of the constipation. And so I like to separate the vitamin D from the calcium to make sure I've got the vitamin D going in. There's a good complementary point to that is there's a study out of Austria, I believe, that shows that with good vitamin D supplementation, less calcium is needed. But again, we're a little bit at the edge of our concrete evidence basis. But I agree that in many respects with good vitamin D supplementation and status, then we don't have to really focus too much on the calcium. Under these circumstances, I'd say that somewhere between 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day would be more than adequate. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, Dr. Bruce Trohn. Bruce, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.